To read Back to Reality, the best-selling novel of the bestseller experiment by the two marks, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash back to reality. And subscribe to this podcast to get loads of extra bonuses. Go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash subscribe. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And before we dive into this week's amazing episode, we would like to thank our sponsor, Pro Writing Aid. The official, yes, I I announced this today, Mark, the official editing software of the Bestseller Experiment. We'd like to welcome... Pro Writing Aid, who are an amazing company, um, been chatting with the folks there. We're so glad to have you guys on board, and we're so glad to tell you, our listeners, about what they do because it's absolutely amazing. Pro Writing Aid is a grammar checker, spell, a style editor, and writing mentor all in one package. And what's amazing, Mark, this is really exciting, is Pro Writing Aid integrates with Scrivener. Yes. <laughs> yes. When I saw that, I thought, yes, <laughs> I'm they're in. in, they're in. And, but on top of that, it's not just Scrivener. They also integrate with Word, Google Docs, mm-hmm. Chrome, Safari, um, Open Office, and Outlook. And so it's actually designed for the smarter writer. It's not one of these kind of big box solutions that you see out there. It's designed for the smarter writer, which is actually every single person who listens to this podcast. So as a listener of this podcast, we have managed to get you guys an incredibly whopping 20% off Pro Writing Aid. I know, right now. So to get your discount jump over right now to prowritingaid.com forward slash bestseller. Oh, that's amazing. Very, very exciting news. And a big welcome to our Patreon supporters as well. Uh, Again, you know, you keep us going, folks. You are just amazing. And uh, you want to join us on Patreon. There are three tiers. If you want to support the podcast, you can be a pensmith for just $2 a month. For $5, you can be a bestseller to be and get access to over 60 deep dive episodes. And for $10, you're a chart topper. For that, you get the deep dives access to our exclusive BXP group on Facebook and more about that later. Uh, You get uh, episodes early, you get episodes of bonus material, you can submit to our one-page punch-ups and I've been sifting through those today for the next round of those and you can attend the live shows and we've got some news about our next live show. Our next live show is going to be, right, jot this down folks, get your pens out, uh, Tuesday 8th of October and that's 8 p.m. UK time. Now we're going to put all the details up on Patreon for our chart topper supporters. Those are the folks who get exclusive access to the live shows. And the reaction, again, we'll talk about this more in the social media at the end, Mr. D, but the reaction to the last live show, which focused on mental health, has been incredible, hasn't it? It has been, and so much so that that is going to be a continued topic that we're going to do for the live show because we think it's so important to discuss this. It's not really out there much in the writing circles, but writing and mental health, um, we're all in it together, and it's really good that we're making this a very open and fascinating discussion. We've had so many people who it's made such an impact on their lives. So join us if you'd like to be a part of the live audience. Get over to Patreon now, um, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support, and you'll become part of the BXP team where we will take your questions before the show. If you can't make the show or if you come live onto the show, you can ask us questions live on the show. So let's make it really relevant to everyone in our writing community. So that's very exciting. Now, Mark, you know, one of the things that we do on this podcast, we're all about inspiring people, not just inspiring people to write, but also inspiring them to take action. 
And I've got to say, I'm very, very chuffed this week, Mr. Stay, because you know, one of my biggest problems, and I know most people are with me on this, is actually writing, actually sitting down and doing it, writing consistently every day. And I've been doing a little mini experiment. And I'm not going to talk too much about it now because it's it's still kind of work in progress. It's in the laboratory, but it's working. (laughs) And I've started writing again. I've been writing solidly for the last week. I've polished off about three, four thousand words, which I haven't done in quite a while. So if this continues, I will be sharing the secrets. So if you are one of those people as well, and we know that a lot of people struggle with this writing every day or creating writing as a habit, I might have the answer for you. So stay tuned, folks. I'm just picturing you in your little white lab coat in your laboratory, <laughs> surrounded my, by test tubes. <laughs> exactly. And my empty pen pen cartridges. So it's all good stuff. It's brilliant. And um, what's been happening in your world this week, Mark? Well, speaking of mental health, um, <laughs> well, you, you'll know this because you've lived the life of the freelancer for a long, long time. I've. This is my first year of not being a wage slave, okay? You know, I'm... And, Everything was going along just fine until about mid-July. Then everything just stopped. And it's, it's yeah. uh, you know, th- no one's answering and no one wants... And it's like, oh, hey, hang on. So weirdly, just this week, certainly in the UK, all the kids go back to school and the phone and starts ringing starts again. Ringing. It's know? a phenomenon <laughs> that I've seen for oh, 20 man. years. Yeah, I should have told you. I'm sorry. I should it's have told terrifying. you. Terrifying. Anyone who anyone who does any kind of um, support services, whether it's coaching or or anything like that, you'll find that during the summer holidays there's this big lull, and also when the kids go back to school, it has this effect of the parents thinking, "Oh, I should you know be thinking about my education, my personal development." Same thing happens at the beginning of January. I see every year as well. But it is fascinating, isn't it? It's terrifying, but I mean, I guess I should have known because I mean, publishing uh, you know does kind of shut down in August. Uh, I you know I've I've seen it happen, but of course you know when you've got regular money coming in on a wage, you, you don't really worry too much about it. But it was um, yeah, it was kind of and what's great. I, I don't think I've mentioned this before, but a, a, a TV thing that I thought was kind of dead in the water is now full steam ahead, which is really oh. exciting. So um, when can you tell us more about that? Is there a kind of uh, but right. I'm, I'm, I'll keep I'm, pushing, I'm, folks. Don't you worry, there, I'll get there, out there, of there, <laughs> there might be There might be a meeting at the end of the month where I might know a bit more. But, I, I mean, I did – the contract I signed specifically says – no social media doesn't mention podcasts but does it not well if it doesn't mention podcasts that's not social media come on tell us as long as everyone in the audience promises not to say anything to anyone else put on problem yeah right yeah i know you can't but no that's i'm excited i'm very excited for you so that was that was that that was that was one of those moments walking back to a car phone rings and i saw a number i've not seen in months i kid you not months i'm like oh oh so uh, i i got in the car sat in the car you know it's like oh hi Oh, we're still on. Oh, that's oh, very exciting. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Lovely. So, you know, oh, I thought you were going to say it was a bum <laughs> dial, you know, when you, somebody's got, got your number. <laughs> it's like, oh, sorry. But no, no, that, that was off years ago. Sorry. Yeah. No, I just, I was just sitting in a cafe working with this like Hollywood script and yeah, I accidentally called you, but. Butt dial, yeah. 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 So, you know, it's, it's a good lesson. You know, don't give up on anything. You no. know, it's. Uh, Do you know what? I think as a, even the most successful authors, 
they still have their roller coaster. It might not be quite as high and low, but there are peaks and troughs because that, folks, I've discovered is what life is all about. Doesn't matter what you're doing. And you know what? We've talked about this before, but if you think about how a roller coaster looks, it's a, it's a sine wave, it's an up and down curve. And we'd rather have that than the other alternative, which is the horizontal line which is also known as flatlining, which means we're yeah. dead. So, you know, there is no such thing as as a, a consistent life as such. So I encourage everyone that if you're in a slump right now, it means that you're about to go up soon because you know that eventually the the valley has to bottom out and the and the curve will start to turn. So I just want to encourage everyone just to hang on in there if you're if you're having a challenging month. Sure. The slings and arrows of outrageous fortunes, Shakespeare said. That's know, right. So it's uh, it's yeah, amazing got, stuff. Mm. It's so interesting. Now, we've got some really interesting social media to cover towards the end of this show. We've also got a really massive announcement about somebody very special who's coming on the show next week. So <laughs> stick with us to the end. But this week, Mark, we have an incredible interview by none other than Phoebe Locke. Tell us about, about Phoebe's career. Oh, this is a wonderful Wonderful opportunity to speak to Phoebe, who also writes... Uh, Phoebe Locke is the pseudonym of the writer Nikki Cloak. And Nikki Cloak uh, also writes sort of YA thrillers as well. So um, it's, 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 this is... Uh, we're talking to Phoebe... Okay, this is very confusing. Two names. We're talking to Phoebe about her book, The July Girls, which has been a smash hit over the summer. Really great thriller with a real killer hook, which we talk about in the interview. Uh, We talked to her about how she takes a character from the age of 10 through to 25, which has its own massive challenges. Uh, She also talks about, and you're going to love this, Mr. B. She talks about how she did therapy as one of her characters. Mm. So that's, that's, a, that's a mind blower. And we also talk about her YA writing uh, as Nikki as well. Uh, and, and since we, again, we, we interview, I interviewed uh, Phoebe quite a while ago, and this was before her new book, Toxic, came out. So she's actually got two new books. She's got The July Girls and Toxic. But it's, uh, we talk about horror. We talk about all sorts of great stuff. Great stuff. Well, let's dive straight in. Phoebe Locke chatting with Mr. Stay. Phoebe Locke, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I'm really good, actually. I'm just back from um, a five-day hen party, so I'm a little <laughs> bit tired. But <laughs> other than that, great. <laughs> a five-day hen party. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> did, did you did you go anywhere anywhere nice, or were you constantly on the move? We went to Bilbao and San Sebastian, which are both absolutely lovely cities. But it did rain. The entire time so maybe not as much exploring as i would have liked but yeah, yeah. <laughs> well okay we'll keep this we'll keep this low-key and gentle okay this one will be intense interview. um <laughs> It's fantastic to have you on the show. We're absolutely fascinated by your new books, The July Girls, which follows on from The Tall, uh, the Tall Man. And I also want to talk about your route to publication and the fact that you've you've had a bit of a name change along the way. But let's talk about The, the July Girls, first of all, because you're getting the most amazing quotes. And it has this wonderful killer hook, a serial killer who strikes on the same night every year. And a little girl who thinks her father is the one responsible. Are you a disturbed individual? Where did that come from? (laughs) That is the question my mum asks me every time she reads my books, yes. (laughs) Um, By the way, that is the best one-line pitch of a book I've heard so far. Okay. Thanks. I'm going to steal that. (laughs) Yes, no, I'm actually quite a sunny, happy person, I think. I think I get it all out on the page. (laughs) But, yeah, I think with the July Girls, the hook 
the same day every year that wasn't there at first. It just happened to be that it happened on July 7th. 2005 the first right. sort of time we meet those characters and um yeah as the story grew i started to realize i wanted it to happen on that day each year and there's you know when you get to the end of the book you realize there is a reason the killer strikes on that day each year um but obviously you don't find that out until right at the end and of course if you're a londoner that's that's quite a significant date as well isn't it yes exactly um so i lived in london for 10 years i've recently moved back to the countryside where i grew up um but i wasn't actually in london in 2005, I was in Australia traveling, but my dad was working in London. So I remember very clearly seeing it on the news for the first time and being a lot of English people all kind of congregating in this bar watching Tony Blair make his speech on TV and, you know, being really, really upset in a kind of different way to how I would have felt if I was here, I think. Um, seeing something unfold from so far away is really disorientating. And um, so I've always been very interested in hearing from other friends who were in the city at the time, um, what it was like for them and trying to kind of recreate that that terrible day um, in fiction was a really interesting challenge, I think. Mm, absolutely. And that's an area that whenever fiction touches on, on real life, particularly a real life tragedy, the, that has to be handled with, with a bit of sensitivity, doesn't it? What, what, how, did yeah. you, how did you approach that in particular? I mean, I think it's very important for me that I wasn't writing about it because like you say it, you know it's happened mm. to real people i don't think it's something you should try and fictionalize in that way but um it needed to be a day where london was you know not itself where nothing was as it ever is yeah. and it happens to be the main character abby's 10th birthday so for her it's this very strange day where she goes to school very excited about her birthday and her sister coming to pick her up from school to take her out for a birthday treat and by the end of the day the city is unrecognisable you know there's no way of getting around it people are just standing in shock in the streets and um, and that's where things begin to unravel for that family um, it could I suppose have been any event a made up event but I kind of wanted to root it in in that city that I know and so for me it felt good to start to have it on that day and because the book covers I think it's 15 years in the end. You, you meet Abby every three years throughout the book as she grows from yeah. being 10 to 25. Um, other things happen in London during that time. So you sort of get to follow London as it changes too. There's the riots in 2000, 2008, 2011. <laughs> and yeah, so it is, it is sort of charting the city as well as Abby growing up. That's, that's a unique challenge in itself, isn't it? Taking a character from the age of 10 to the age yeah. of 25. Is that something you plotted out beforehand? Is that, did you do detailed character studies of Abby or is it something that you just uh, wrote as you went along? Um, no, she, I mean, she is probably the character that I've got to know the most out of any of my characters before, except perhaps for Amber in The Tall Man. Um, and for Amber is the main character in The Tall Man novel before this one. And in some ways, they're, they're kind of two halves of the same they're not the same person, but they have very, very different personalities. But maybe they do share some interesting traits. And the reason I've got to know them both so well is actually because I have a an ex-colleague um, who, as well as doing some editorial work, is also a psychotherapist. And she came to me, I think it's probably about two years ago now, and said, I'm trying to find a way of combining those two jobs, and I'm going to start offering therapy for characters 
um, would you come and test it out for me, come and be a guinea pig? So, well, so I went to her office where she does her psychotherapy and I had to turn up as Amber, the main character and the tall man, <laughs> and spend an hour having a therapy session as Amber as I would if I'd been a new client of hers and then got this sort of report at the end about Amber. And so when I wanted to write Addie, knowing that the July girls would have such a much bigger time span and follow this one character quite intensively through the, that time, I knew straight away Right, <laughs> back to therapy, <laughs> um, yeah. and wanted to really get that, get to know her and get to understand how her her family situation. Because um, they, they don't have a very easy life. Her family, she's it's her sister and her dad. Her mum has been um, gone since she was a baby, and you know they 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 struggle financially, and they have quite a difficult relationship. The three of them. So I wanted to know in much more detail how that would affect somebody growing up. Particularly then when you throw in the idea that you might think your father is a serial killer. This is fascinating. You did therapy in character yeah. as one of your characters, which is great yeah. because they say, if, if, particularly your protagonist, if, if you know them well enough, you should be able to know how they would react in any any situation. So when you went into yeah. that, were there any surprises? Were there things that, that, that came out of left field that you thought, I'm putting that in the book? Yes, there was actually. It's, it's so interesting. And she'd said to me beforehand, um, Arabelle, who's a therapist, had said, you can either come as yourself and we'll just talk about the character or come as them. And that's what I would really recommend. You should probably try and not act, but, you know, sort of, yeah, act a little bit. Um, and she said to me afterwards, she's like, it's really interesting. As soon as you came into the office, your whole body language changed. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, and so this is when I was Amber from The Tall Man, who she, we sort of took her at the start of the novel when she was 16, so sort of a moody, difficult teenager. And um, she did say to me at the end of the session as well, I'm really glad you're not a real client because I'd probably have to call social services. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but it is, and some of the things she was asking me, I, I probably won't say too much, so I don't want to give away spoilers, but... There were things that I was saying without really realising the sort of significance of them and she would sort of come back to me and say, oh, but do you think that you're doing that because you feel pushed out of your family situation and you're kind of recreating that with your friends, and which Amber definitely does do in The Tall Man. Um, and I was kind of like, yeah, I do think that. I think that's exactly <laughs> why. That's great. Um, so I think sometimes you make these choices about your character's without really realising that you are taking a much deeper pattern that is there in the relationships you've set up. Um, and it comes quite naturally, I think, once you get to know those characters, you do their behaviour becomes more instinctive to you, I think. Yeah. Um, so you might not always consciously think, I think that, say, Addie is insecure because of this, this and this, but you do know that on a deeper level, that maybe these insecurities come from those relationships or... You know that sort of thing. That's that's amazing. I mean, the tall man. For listeners who who maybe don't know the book, uh, the tall man is is based largely 
on the, that internet phenomenon of the Slender Man, which uh, right. my kids knew all about and, were, and it is intensely creepy. It's this kind of tall, thin... I'll put a link in the show notes, listeners, so you can give yourself nightmares. But this tall, <laughs> thin man who gets children to do terrible things on his behalf. So yeah. you're getting in, you're going into some very, very dark places, aren't you? Did that, did that have any yeah. after effect? Did you have sort of a, you know, were you feeling depressed afterwards, gloomy, aggressive, anything like that? No, do you know what? The weird thing is that I grew up a massive Stephen King fan. I've read everything that he's written. And I yeah. still do love him. And I still, I think... What, you watch a lot of horror films because as a teenager that was what I really loved but between The Tall Man coming out and writing The July Girls or while I was in the middle of writing The July Girls I suddenly started having loads of nightmares and being unable to watch anything scary Right. and I I don't know if I've just reached my limit or something but um, <laughs> yeah I just had the, I had a period about three or four months last summer where I just was waking up all the time I um, suffer from sleep paralysis so not not great sleeper anyway um but yeah just having these terrible nightmares and i yeah it's partly i think from going to quite dark places several years in a row with writing both these books (laughs) but um yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what, what do you like with, with horror movies? Because I love horror. I know people who won't go anywhere near horror, and I love horror, and I, I've written horror. Uh, but every time, I mean, Haunting of Hill House, I, again, you just become paralyzed with fear while watching yeah. that. I've, sleeping with the lights on kind of thing. My wife can just completely shrug it off, but me and my daughter sit there clutching each other, you know, terrified. <laughs> and yet we go back for more. Why is that? I don't know. I think maybe the feeling of being scared is quite addictive. You sort of, mm. if something really makes you jump, it's kind of an exciting feeling in a way, isn't it? And I, I think I enjoy that part of it. I think it's only now, as I've got older, you have that more lingering kind of memory of, of fear. And um, The Haunting of Hill House actually was, I'd watched that around the sort of time that I was also losing sleep. And there's one episode. <laughs> Um, I wasn't. I won't spoil it. But there's one episode which you'll probably know what I'm talking about with a, a figure not unlike Slenderman yes, in it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Not which should be. Oh, gosh. That should be right up my street. That's you know, <laughs> my terrified me. I couldn't stop thinking about it for weeks. The, you know, there's just that one part with with the bed and the feet. Um, oh yeah. God. I have a theory that it's kind of cathartic because a lot of the people I know, having worked in film, I know people who make horror films and they are the nicest people you could possibly, possibly meet. And I think this is because yeah. they, they get it out of their system. Yeah. <laughs> I think I had an interesting conversation with CJ Tudor about this. So he wrote The Chalk Man mm. last year and The Taking of Annie Thorne this year. And she, again, is one of the cheeriest people I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> goes to and we were sort of saying that I think there's been a kind of upsurge in horror recently, perhaps because the world has become so scary in much more mm. realistic ways in you know, the political situation and there's just lots of uncertainty about where we're going and in that way falling back on kind of ghosts and ghouls and serial killers has a sort of nostalgia to it a kind of it's a sort of more innocent fear than fear for the actual world we live in yeah i think that's very interesting very interesting it's at one remove isn't it yeah it's it's a fear that you can turn off and step away from and yeah i think maybe that's that's there's something quite healthy about that somehow (laughs) 
you talked about reading Stephen King there. Uh, I think like me, I, I devoured Stephen King's work when I was a teenager and, and all sorts of stuff. Were you were you a teenage horror fan or would, were you? did you just want to be a writer when you were younger? How did it all start for you? Um, I mean, I've always been a massive bookworm and a really eclectic book reader. You know, I think probably at 16, I might have said my favourite books were Jane Eyre and Misery. That, that those were the <laughs> kinds of <laughs> the scale I was working on, and that's never really changed, actually. Um, and I, I think I always did write stories around that age, and certainly younger. I know, I remember my brother and I watching <laughs> The Animals of Farthing Wood each week on TV, um, <laughs> and hating it if they ended on a cliffhanger, which they did all the time. It's quite oh. a dramatic TV show for it's a good, children's good, cartoon. It was a good, it was a good um, show, I remember, so, yeah. Oh, such a good show. Um, so we would then spend the rest of that, that afternoon or whatever trying to make up what would happen to the characters next. Um, but I think as I maybe got older, and certainly at university, it never occurred to me that I could be a writer. So I, that's how I ended up going into publishing quite briefly, because that was the next best thing to me, I think, to go and work with books. But it hadn't occurred to me that I could maybe write my own until having been in publishing and sort of watching you know, all these other books get published. And I remember meeting uh, an author, Richard Millwood. This is when I was working at Faber. And he, I think he was my age at the time when he was first published, which was, this was quite young. I was only in my early 20s. Um, just thinking, wow, like, actually, anybody, you know, people can just write books. It's not this kind of <laughs> mystical you know special elevated mm. profession you can if you just work hard you can you can write so i think that i started secretly writing then um and that's yeah that's kind of where it started i suppose excellent i love this idea that you're secretly writing uh yes had, had you always written since you were young then uh, you know beyond the animal or farthing wood uh cliffhangers were you, were you writing at, at school or at, at college I'd said I did a few writing modules at university, um, sh just short stories, uh, which I think might have put me off a little bit at first because right. I wasn't very good. I wasn't very good at short stories. I'm still not very good at short stories. I find them incredibly hard to write compared to a novel, um, yeah. so I kind of avoid that challenge. Um, so yeah, so I think maybe that put me off a little bit. And then I did have an idea for a novel when I was about 19, which I just found on a laptop the other day, some <laughs> like, forgotten, dusty file. I was like, that's actually quite a good idea. Maybe I'll revisit, maybe I'll revisit that. But yeah, no, not at all. And then just working in publishing. I wasn't working in an editorial part of publishing. I was working, I was actually doing the permissions for Faber. So permissions is when people who want to use uh, parts of books. So say, for instance, Faber has a big poetry list. So whenever... Mm -hmm. An exam board or um, a company wanted to use one of Sylvia Plath's poems, they would have to write to me in that, at that time and tell me why they wanted to use it, and then I would write them a license and charge them a, a sort of nominal fee. Um, so, not really that bookish, quite, it's sort of a rights based part of the business, but you're still around books a lot. And I think I was seeing all these books, these amazing books get published. And also seeing some amazing books get published and then not do as well as I thought they should. And it was very frustrating, I think. Yes. Um, which is why as soon as I started writing myself, I left publishing. Because I just thought it's, it's quite weird to be on both sides of the fence in that way. <laughs> it can be quite off-putting seeing 
publishing and seeing books as an as a kind of industry and a commodity and also trying to be creative about writing at the same time two sides of the coin that just don't really work together somehow that's that's interesting to me because rights is possibly the part of publishing that few authors truly understand in fact a lot of people who work, having worked in publishing myself, very very few people in publishing understand rights. So it's yeah. uh, it's quite a complex area. What were the biggest lessons you took from working at Faber that that you took into your career as a writer? Um, I think just being really passionate about um, about the books that you love and whatever they are. And I think maybe it's really it really helped me embrace that Stephen King, Charlotte Bronte mix of things that I love and want to achieve as a writer and and just being passionate about books no matter what they are even though Faber is a very literary publishing house there is such their list whether it's the children's list the non-fiction list the fiction list just being around people who love books that much was really inspiring and I think yeah I think it made me care less about being a bestseller or like about sales in general I think Right. I think it, it was, I always wanted to capture that passion that I felt when I first walked into Faber. Just that, like, wow, book feeling. I think, I think <laughs> something I, I think, I've always tried to be told of. I think that's an important lesson to learn as well, because one of the things we've had time and again on this podcast is we've had authors who have chased the zeitgeist, chased the market. But then so often we've heard people say, it was when I sat down and wrote the thing that I loved that my big breakthrough came. And we have seen this again and again. And it's um, it's often the weird, strange thing that uh, that comes out, you know, of that no one is is guessing that takes everyone by surprise. Now, you now, listeners, listeners, I'm going to let you into a little secret here. Phoebe Locke (laughs) is not Phoebe Locke's real name. Uh, Can you can you reveal who you really are? Um, yes, my real name is Nikki Cloak, and I have written some other things under that name in the past. Uh, I've written three YA novels under that name, and I wrote two slightly weirder, I don't know how you'd categorise them, really, sort of literary, maybe YA crossover slightly um, novels before that as well. Which which came first? The first one was called Someday Find Me, and uh, I think that that's what I would sort of say was kind of YA crossover even though probably around that time, um, in 2012, we didn't really have that as a category. Yeah. So it was sort of a, quite difficult to categorise, which is probably why it didn't sell anything. <laughs> Ahead of your um, time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I wrote a novel called Lay Me Down, which is, again, quite a literary... I don't know how to describe that one, really. Kind of a slightly mystery, sort of romancy drama... Mm-hmm. Thing. <laughs> right. and then three YA thrillers since then. Okay, let's talk about that first book coming through. Uh, which, yeah. um, how did that come about? I mean, this is this is always the big breakthrough for people. Someday, find me. You've got your first novel. How did that all come yeah. about? Um, again, so this is during my secret writing phase when I was writing sort of after work and um, on the occasional lunch break and. I I was particularly lucky because I was working in publishing in a completely separate area to what I was hoping to write. You still get to hear things. And that's why when I always say to people who are are wanting to get into the industry, the best way to find the agent or editor for you is to check the acknowledgements of books you love and think are similar. Because the reason I got my first agent is 
and there was this book that was doing the rounds of publishing at that time, which everyone was really excited about. And I had completely fallen in love with it. It's called Pigeon English um, by Stephen Kelman. And it was this absolutely beautiful story about this young boy. Um, and it wasn't on the surface that similar to Someday Find Me, but there was something about it being very voice-driven and about this character. Um, but I just thought, if this agent could like my book even a tiny amount of how much she obviously cares about this book she's selling at the moment, I'd be very lucky. Um, and she's obviously someone who's got similar taste to me because this is the best book I've read for years. Um, so I submitted it to her, and I was really lucky that she did like it. In fact, I was particularly lucky because she worked on it with me for about 18 months before she then sold it, wow. um, which I, not every agent would do that. Um, you know, she was very good editorially, and the book wasn't ready, but she obviously saw something in it. In fact, when I went to see her the first time, she'd read it. Um, I went for a meeting with her to talk about whether she'd like to represent me, and um, she said, I really love it, but I think you need to cut these two characters. At the time, there was four voices in the novel, and she basically wanted to be cut to cut two, which was 50% of the book. I mean, that's easily six months to a year's work just to get that first draft back. But I left that meeting feeling really energised, and I thought, if she can make me feel energised about such a huge task, then she's obviously pretty special. Um, so she was absolutely brilliant to work with. And, yeah, we were lucky that we did sell the novel. I always say, I always think it's lucky when anyone sells a novel. I hadn't seen firsthand through working at publishing how hard it is to get things published. Um, I think people sometimes underestimate what an achievement that is, no matter what then goes on to happen with the book in terms of sales and coverage. Just getting that first foot through the door is a huge thing. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's an incredible achievement. I I, I was interested in what you were saying uh, about the agent suggesting that you cut a number of characters. That's always a big dilemma for an author because it's often a question of trust. This is, you know, someone is opening a door for you and saying, okay, we can can do this together, but I'm going to ask you to make some big compromises, big changes. Yeah. Not all of us would be would be happy with that, but you felt you could trust your agent to, to see you through that. Yes. I I think like I say, it was that gut feeling walking away from that meeting. I think I was energized and I was relieved because she'd articulated something I knew was wrong but hadn't been able to quite figure out for myself. So I knew there was something wrong with the book, but it wasn't until she said those characters aren't as strong as those two. Yeah. I think, no, I can see that now. And I'm, I probably was leaning more towards the other two. So maybe just kind of struggling through because somehow I decided it was going to be four voices. So to have someone give you that freedom to make that big change yeah. um, was amazing. I think, I don't think I've ever been asked to make a big change that I wasn't happy with mm-hmm. in any of the books. I think you do have to choose your battles sometimes, don't you? But... I yeah. think if I ever had a gut feeling that it wasn't right, I hope that I'd be able to sort of argue my case. Um, yeah. I mean, it's so hard, isn't it? Because you don't know, you know, I never think I know better than somebody else, but equally you might have two readers who feel completely differently about yeah. a book, and it's hard. And I think now I do some freelance editorial work as well as my own writing, and I'm always very careful now when I'm giving someone feedback <laughs> not to say this is the right way to write your book. Yeah. It's probably the way I feel is the right way, but it has to be right for the 
to the author themselves. It has to feel to them like the right direction for the story, I think. That's and it's very easy to get excited about something. Like I can quite often pick up something I'm doing some freelance work on and think, God, this could be absolutely amazing if, if this happened or if, if she, he or she took it more in a thriller direction. Yeah. But that's, that's not necessarily the best advice to give somebody. I think sometimes the best notes you get are the ones that confirm that niggling doubt that you've had at the back of your head all yeah. the time. You know, that, exactly. that's, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, then you have, uh, you've written some YA novels as, as Nikki, but then with uh, The Tall Man and The July Girls, you're writing as, yeah. as Phoebe Locke. That's quite a, a shift in tone. You're doing commercial thrillers here, uh, which look yeah. getting most amazing reviews. Was that a conversation you had with your agent uh, and maybe publisher about a change in direction? or was it something that you had in mind all along? Um, it was my agent, actually. So before, before we sent it out to publishers, we had a chat about it, and um, she just said, it, you know, it's quite a different direction for you. Maybe you should think about keeping them as separate identities. And I think I was quite happy with that. It's quite nice to have the freedom to, to keep them separate. And I, with the YA stuff, I do quite often get messages on Instagram or on Twitter from quite young teenagers who are sort of saying how much they love the books. They can't wait to read what I write next. And I'm not sure that the tall man is something that I would automatically want all of them to read. You know, everyone has a different reading age and different mm. sort of things. And I would never say don't read it. But I think it's having that signpost to say, this is quite a different book. Yeah. If you, if you liked those, don't be disappointed by this. It's different <laughs> in that you know, in that sort of way. It's it's kind of yeah, yeah, more of a signpost for me. I know. I think the industry unfortunately does get quite excited about debuts. So I think for my agent yeah. and publisher, that had an appeal to them. Being able to say it's her debut thriller as Phoebe, that was less important for me. It was more about just sort of keeping the areas of my writing a bit separate. I think yeah. It's, it's yeah. been a bit complicated because when you do events and stuff, you have to remember to answer to the right name. <laughs> 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 Which I've just about mastered now, two years on. But, um, how, how, did, how did you choose the name? <laughs> well, so lock is just cloak with the C moved. Very good. So that yeah. that. But also lock had some kind of a sort of thrillerish sound, which I quite liked. Yeah. Um, Phoebe is a name, this is the worst story ever, but it's a name... <laughs> that I, I really like, but probably wouldn't have been in my, say, top three if I ever have a daughter, if I didn't want to steal right. <laughs> a baby name from myself. <laughs> um, I really need to make up a better story for that. I remember telling my dad that I was using a pseudonym and that's what it was. He was like, oh, no, you know, why didn't you just pick, oh, I know, why didn't you call yourself Charlotte? Because... Our dog's called Charlie. Like, <laughs> naming myself after the family dog is even worse than my story. Why <laughs> I picked the name? So no. Well, it worked for Indiana Jones. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what's what's coming next for you? Um, I'm working on the next novel at the moment. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure yet whether it's a Phoebe novel or a Nikki novel. Um, oh, right. Yeah, so I'm working on something. I think it's always quite hard when a book's about to come out. So in some ways, it's quite nice to lose yourself in something new, but mm. it's also quite hard to to fully immerse yourself, I think, in a new set of characters when, when you know, you're talking about, say, the characters in the July Girls now quite a bit. 
So I sort of use this time, I think, for plotting the next one and and sort of trying to live with those characters a little bit in my head, but not committing too much to to really getting my head down. So that'll be a job for kind of late summer, autumn will be when I really try and get going on that. Excellent stuff. Well, we know it's going to be an absolute smash. So, Phoebe, thank you so much for joining us today and hope to speak to thank you again you soon. Thank you so much for having me. I think that's probably one of the most inventive ways to do research, Mark. Take Doing therapy as a character, that is absolute genius. It's brilliant, is it? It's such a good idea because so much of writing is psychological. I think, you know, we've heard this a few times on the show. People have said, actually, maybe don't go on a writing course, maybe study psychology, you know, because if you want to know how people tick, uh, oh. you know, how the mind works, it's such a fun uh, area to, to explore. And uh, it's particularly if you're writing thrillers, because you're taking people at the fringes of society, people who contemplate murder or victims of murder or, or, or terrible things happening. So, yeah, it's it's um, it's it was a really interesting choice. I don't think we've had anyone come on the show who's done that before. I've never heard of it. You know, what would have been really fascinating on top of that was to actually do the therapy without telling the therapist that you were <laughs> in character. Could you imagine? Well, she said I, she said if, if the therapist said but, if she didn't know, she was going to call social services. Well, this is know? it. It, though because that and then that leads me to another another idea which okay whoever wants this you have to come onto bxp uh you have to come onto the bxp facebook group so bestseller experiment on facebook the public group and claim it so whoever hears this first you come and claim it and say i've claimed this i'm writing this book how about a story about somebody who does exactly that who's researching a character for a book that they've got they go see a therapist and then the therapist believes they're like a mass murderer and then it all just unfolds from there. That would be an amazing story. So if anyone wants it, it's yours. Take it. Just put me in the thank you to the beginning of the book if it becomes a bestseller. But could you imagine how something like that could unfold and how complicated something like that could get when you then have to try and convince someone that you were just trying to write a book? Well, that's the thing. Anything like this, this is why... Uh, when you, because this this made me think of the kind of character preparation that actors do. So yes. when we were the, we had a week's rehearsal before Robot Overlords, and we sat down with the kids specifically, and I worked with them on their characters, and we would have conversations with them in character because we wanted them to bond as a group. And it's that actor thing of being in character, which, you know, if you've not done it, people can go, oh, God, he's so pretentious, you know, method actor, blah, blah, blah. But I tell you what, it works. It really, really works. If you can find that character and stay in character, uh, for some actors, it's absolutely essential. So, you know, I've always said, you know, get involved with a drama group, do a bit of acting, do a bit of improv or something. I think it yeah. really, really helps uh, with you as a writer i think to some extent as writers we we are kind of multifaceted in the sense that we do have to enter the minds of every one of our characters but we're constantly flitting between each one depending on the dialogue and depending on what's going on but i think definitely protagonist and antagonist we should probably really try and imagine what it's like to be that person rather than just kind of writing a little character sheet and thinking about, you know, what's, what do they eat and what music do they listen to and what are their weaknesses and strengths? I think we should play with it like an actor would do, because when you, when you see all these Oscar winning performances of all these major Hollywood stars, you know, you hear about, oh, they spent, you know, three months in a, a psychiatric unit or they spent, mm. you know, a week in a wheelchair and actually just going around, you know, trying to imagine what it's like, because that is really the only true way that you get 
a degree, and I say a degree of empathy of what it's like, because obviously we can never know, for example, what it's like to be blind. You know, we can, we can wander around, but we always get to open our eyes at the end. So I think, I think it's brilliant. I, I, I think it's a fantastic, and I'm sure that's probably partly why Phoebe's book's been so successful because of that amount of depth of, of, of research she went into, into getting into the character's head. Yeah, you just have to read the reviews on Amazon and Goodreads and you'll, you'll see that people really, these characters really resonate with people. So yeah, it definitely works, I think. Yeah, and I must say, when we were writing Back to Reality, we were in the heads of Joe and Johanna, the two main characters. I think it, it became, I, I felt at times when I'd drift off and be thinking about the character, I would start thinking like she would think and try and imagine what she would do in certain situations. And I think that that it's one of the gifts, if you like, of 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 writing is that you get to think about other people's lives and you can kind of get out of your own head. And that's great for getting a bit of perspective in your own life, right? Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, a lot of Joe's ambitions were our ambitions, this idea of second chances, this idea of family. That's why when we did that spreadsheet, remember that spreadsheet we did before we wrote anything where we figured out where the crossovers, the things that we were both passionate about, you know that, so we knew that we would be able to write about these characters from a position of uh, of of knowledge of passion, something that we knew about. But also, you know, we would we would you know we would talk to our wives about their situations and stuff like that. So it's it's that combination of yes, you do your research, you write about the things that you are passionate about, but also you you know do your therapy, you do your research, you get your sensitivity readers, you get people to 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 run through it with you. Uh, and it's a combination of, of those two things, the passion and the research. And I think that, that, that clearly works. And I think also another, another great tip is to actually make one of your characters somebody that you live with or you're with, with a, on a regular basis. <laughs> when, because when we, were, when we were writing Johanna, or Joe, I should say, the, the mother in our, in our story, um, you know, our wives were around. Yeah. We had, we had, we, we got to see their world. And, and actually, what it did for me through the process of thinking what life must be like for a mum and the struggles of, of a mum and letting go of as the kids grow up, all the things that, you know, we as dads, we, we to an extent um, experience as well, but the things that are particularly maternal around that mm. relationship. I gained a lot more, um, I, I really appreciated, if you like, a lot more of what what my wife did, you know, as a mum, because of the fact I threw myself into it. So if you want to gain empathy or, or more of an understanding about someone who you really love and you value in your life, like make them one of your characters or base it on them so that you get the chance to kind of deep dive with that character. And, and it can actually really help strengthen the relationship in many ways. So just a little idea there. But one thing I want to talk about, Mark, as well, which I found really fascinating was this idea of horror. Mm. And I know that you're, I know that you're into horror. I know you've been writing, you know, you, you write horror as something yep. you play with. We've also interviewed people early on uh, who wrote kind of kids stuff and horror. And it's, 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 a fasc- it's, a, it's a subject that fascinates me because I share something with Phoebe is that I went through a whole phase of being into Stephen King, like who, mm. who wasn't basically. I mean, I think everyone listening to the show probably had a Stephen King phase at some point in their life. Um, but I gave up horror. I actually gave up horror in my late teens. And... I found it really interesting listening to Phoebe talking about how she was getting nightmares, sleep paralysis. And then something that you both mentioned really triggered in my mind. And that was this question of, is horror addictive? And I think it is. 
I think it is because um, there's a lot of interesting analogies that you can draw around horror. Um, one of the things that I discovered is that horror actually, on a subconscious level, people, many people don't realize this, but on a subconscious level, our brain doesn't know what's imagined and what's real. Okay. Conscious level, we know because we're living in this world and we can kind of make sense of it logically and different parts of our brain process different things. But subconsciously, when we are watching a horror movie and seeing someone murdered, our subconscious actually thinks we're about to be murdered because we're so ingrained in that. And it fires, this is the interesting thing, it fires a load of adrenaline off in us. And that's the, that's the thing that we feel, that kind of... <gasps> And that, that our bodies, yeah, everything starts moving in our bodies. And the adrenaline that's released from what we call the fear response is proven to be addictive. Have you ever have you ever thought about that before? Well, it's why we go on roller coasters as well. It's why right. we drive too fast. It's why we, you know, you know. I, I think it's um, I think it's an essential response as well because it is, yeah. it's it's the thing that kept us from being eaten by saber-toothed tigers as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, but I think for me, horror is, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, we live very cosy lives. I mean, certainly in the West and if you're white and if you're middle class, you know, we, we live, and, and again, compared to people just 50 years ago um, or 100 years ago, our lives, I know, I know if you watch the news today, it might not seem like it, but our life, life is much better than it used to be. So the entertainment of horror allows us to sample something dangerous, just as thrillers do, just as, you know, uh, mm. you know a thriller with a bank robber and, or, you know, whatever. It's a, a crime thriller or a show like Mindhunter or what have you. I think it allows us to dip a toe into something that is, is terrifying and, uh, and it triggers. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think... I mean, uh, the reason I go, I, I watch movies to be moved. Uh, I, I go for an emotional response. Uh, books, pretty much the same, but movies move me in a way that no other medium does. And mm. I love that feeling. So I love crying at a movie. I love laughing at a movie. I love being thrilled by a movie. I love, you know, we mentioned Haunting of Hill House. That thing of sitting there with my daughter, Emily, you know, she's 19 now. And we sit there sort of holding hands together. Going, oh, my God, <laughs> did you see that? Did you see that? Oh, oh, oh. That's a great, it's, it's a wonderful, it's something we're going to remember forever. I mean, I have memories of watching Salem's Lot. Oh, uh, yeah. Absolutely terrified me you know and it, it burns something into me so yeah i'm i'm sure it was i'm sure i'm sure it is there is an addictive thing to it but, there is you know i'm kind of curious about the mental health aspect of it though as well because i think like you mentioned as well like your wife she can she can watch it and then just you know Shrug go to off, bed yeah. and, and, and yeah, go yeah. to sleep whereas i found that when i watched horror and i turn the lights off and i'll be you know i would literally it would change my my psyche in some ways and that I would be kind of more on edge and more kind of concerned about things going wrong. And, and I've part of a lot of the work I've done in seminars and coaching, I talk about the information that we take in the information we ingest and we talk about it. We often talk about it in food terms. You know, you are what you eat. You know, if you eat McDonald's mm. every, every day, like Morgan Spurlock tried, you know, eventually you end up getting really sick. And I think that it's all about balance ultimately. I'm not saying people should should or shouldn't do this, but I made a decision in my life that I just didn't want to, uh, if I had a choice of what kind of stuff I wanted to, to absorb into my life, I wanted it to be inspiring, healthy, um, something which motivated me and filled me up rather than scary. 
<laughs> scared the pants off me. No, and it's and weird. It's so strange. And that's just my own personal take no, on it. No, that's but- fair enough. I mean, horror is that one genre. Like, if I say I'm into musicals, people go, oh, okay, you're into musicals. I'm into comedies. Oh, that's fine. I'm into horror. Oh, I never watch horror. And yeah, I meet so and many such, people who yeah. are like that. And I, I understand there's that. A, there's, there's, so many, there's such a broad spectrum of horror. I mean, the, the yeah. stuff that I don't like to watch. So I'm not, when I say gave up horror, horror, I gave up gore. That's what I gave up. I just got to a point where I thought, I don't want to see some somebody getting kind of like ripped apart. And it just, you know, I mean, psychological stuff that, that, that works maybe on your, um, more on the psychology of stuff. I mean, you get that in thrillers. It's not really horror. Um, but it's just that kind of, it's the gore stuff that I found. I just got a bit, yeah, I yeah, just don't well, need to see the images of that. And I mean, I mean, yeah. And, and it's interesting. I, a friend of mine, we were talking about this recently and he said, ever since he had kids, there are certain kinds of horror movies he can't watch anymore. And I think the gore stuff yeah. is so much fun when you, when you're a teenager, which is it why is. movies like Scream have yeah. casts of teenagers. Cause it's, yes. it, it, that it's a wonderfully cathartic thing. Um, uh, uh, talking about thrillers, that we had an episode with Ramsey Campbell, who is a legendary, legendary. He's he's the writer that Stephen King looks up to. Okay, <laughs> who is this yeah. wonderful gentleman? Uh, and again, this goes back to what I said: people who make horror are the nicest people you'll ever meet because they get it out of their system. But Ramsey was talking about that that changing point when Silence of the Lambs came along. And then that line between horror and thriller was suddenly blurred. And horror mm. kind of went out of fashion, certainly in literature. Um, and you started getting more and more psychological thrillers, which then started getting more and more gory as well. You know, authors like Karen Slaughter writing really, really gory stuff. But I think you're right. The food analogy is an interesting one because horror, as far as I'm concerned, is part of a healthy, balanced diet. So I will watch a bit of sci-fi, a bit of musical, a bit of this, a bit of that, and I'll I'll be in the mood for a horror movie. And I say, come on, kids, let's watch let's watch a great horror movie tonight. Yeah. I guess it's the challenge is when somebody, that's all they watch and that's all they feed on, it might start to change their view on maybe the outside world. But here's something that's really positive, though, about horror, is that there's a study out there which talks about how horror, you know, when kids become fascinated with it. I have a 10-year-old right now who is fascinated with the idea of horror. Obviously, she's not watching horror movies, but it's her way of making sense of death. It's actually a way that a kid can safely engage with trying to make sense of the world and actually coming to a point in their life where they start to recognize that they're mortal. And, and Mm. so that is a really positive thing. And they said that kids, you know, you shouldn't, if your child says to you, oh, you know, I want to watch a scary movie or I want, you know, don't dismiss that. What they're actually saying is I'm trying to make sense of life and death. I want to learn more about that. Please, please engage conversation with me about it. So it's a really positive thing when a child actually starts to get interested in horror. And I think it's why as we, um, in my case, it was a teenage phase where you go through kind of wanting to read gore and horror movies and you see as much as we can, because it is that sense of a development stage that we go through, which is actually really quite essential. Yeah, um, there's there's a reason why the point horror stories are so massively popular still. You know, there yeah. is some, you do start when you're, you know, when you're a young adult, and I'm, I'm saying from about 10 plus, you do start thinking about mortality and is there an afterlife? Is there more of this? Uh, do people come back from the dead? That sort of thing, you know. Yeah. And, um, and you know, you go back to fairy stories. You know, there's original fairy stories were horror stories. I don't yeah, care what grim. anyone says. Yeah, Snow, Snow, Snow White, you know, the, the, the Wicked movies. Witch. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, if you go back to Grimm, they're even more horrific. Like the end of Snow White, uh, the Wicked Witch um, uh, in Snow White, they – 
had metal sandals. They were heated over a fire until they were white hot, and then they were put on the wicked witch's feet. And she basically had to dance <sighs> really? about until her feet were were bloody stumps. Yeah, wow. that's the original Grimm's fairy tales. That's horror, man. That wow. is, and that and that and we used to tell children those stories because if you went into the woods on your own, you would be eaten by a bloody wolf, you know, or right. you would be taken by some strange person into a gingerbread cottage or similar yeah, yeah, yeah. and thrown in an oven, you know. And so that's why those stories, those are cautionary tales. They're so essential to our upbringing, yeah. uh, and which is why, you know, I, I think those stories are so popular among the young, you know. So, yeah, yeah it's um, absolutely I, I love has it. I mean, place. I love it. There's yeah. something very interesting as well, just to finish this off, that um, there's something called arousal transfer theory, which I'm thought, sure you've heard of, Mark. <laughs> just, sorry. The, the arousal transfer theory explains partly why we love horror, why we read it, why we watch it. And it's because the negative emotions that it creates when we're really, really scared in a certain situation are intensified by the positive feelings we get when the character survives. Yes. So it's taking you from, yeah. again, you remember we talk about conflict, you know, you take, take the, take the character from one extreme to the other. And the more extreme it is, the more kind of like incredibly, uh, the, the emotional journey is so much more powerful. So as a writer, we're always trying to kind of make these two take the character from one extreme to another. And, you know, when you've got a scary situation and you, and they survive that in itself, creates that effect so it's interesting to kind of understand why it works mm. and how it works within us and like you say psychology i mean if you if you want to understand about character study psychology because this is all kind of um it's all there it's absolutely fascinating i love this is what i love though it's what i love about life trying to work out how we tick what makes mm. us tick and and celebrating i think you know i come from it from a certain perspective but also celebrating the fact that we're all unique we all we all look at things different ways and every single i mean such a colorful thing to be a part of the human race and i think that you know it's Sto good to delve stories are how we make sense of life and death and that's why they're important so if you're ever thinking if you're having a writing day today and you're thinking oh god what am i bothering for this is all completely useless if your story is an honest and true position that you are taking in the world, if you're showing us your world through your little kaleidoscope, the way that you see it, then that's an honest and true way that you are making sense of the world. And that's important. So, you know, you are you are telling us not to go into the woods. You are telling us to beware of the shadows. You are telling us something important about how you see the world. So stick that in your, put that ink in your pen today and write with it. <laughs> smoking pen i love it so the analogy i just had brilliant stuff excellent mark now let's dive into social media this week there was a lot of stuff around the mental health episode that we did recently wasn't there yeah i'm just it's been so incredible getting the feedback from people uh I'd, we've had very very long messages very long messages so i'm gonna i'm gonna paraphrase some of these and um but just to give you an idea and this episode listeners you know it is available you go back i'll put a link in the show notes if you want to have a listen to this but of course if you join us as a chart topper on patreon you can be a part of the next show and i think it's important that that you are um we had a note from sam Makuza who says just finished the mental health episode and i couldn't be more inspired uh the past month i haven't been listening to my podcast i always listen to them during my shift at my old job because it's the only thing to look forward to so when i got fired i just stopped listening now I can't listen at my new receptionist job because I have to pay attention to patients. So I'd been subscribed to about 40 podcasts and now need to make decisions of ones I'll actually listen to my drives. And of course, the bestseller experiment isn't the top five to keep. 
Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Um, but uh, hearing this little bit of mild routine back was what I was missing. Hearing the Mark's voices made me feel like I was able to breathe for the first time in the world. And what an episode to come back to. It helped me to arrange my schedule as I go to different offices through the week. Mondays are the longest drive, so I need to be up at 6 a.m. And those days will be all about listening to the bestseller experiment and plotting out my writing course for the week. Tuesdays to Thursdays, I will still wake up at 6, but I have to do an hour to do some writing before work. Fridays to Sundays are my days off, but I keep the routine of waking up and going right to my desk for an hour, then reward myself with some breakfast uh, before returning to the desktop. I won't put any word goals on the schedule for two weeks so it forms a habit and see how it goes. I have this horrible habit of biting off more than I can chew. And since it's done me more harm than good, I'll leave that at the door. Wish me luck. Look, Sam, best of luck for that. That summer going through a big life change. You get used to a routine and then you have to change it and adjust. And some people bend, some people snap. But I think Sam's on the road to doing something amazing there. So thank you, Sam, for sharing that with us. Brilliant stuff, Sam. Well done. We had an interesting note from Rhoda Baxter as well, talking about normalization. Um, She says, we write books, writing a book is a substantial achievement. But when we're surrounded by people who have also written books, it seems normal. What the downsides is, should it be something we try to overcome? I mean, I think that's that, that could definitely be a subject for the live show. I think we should use that as a jumping off. Well, it is. And it's, I was looking back, I was looking back through my notes because I responded to Rhonda's um, question on the BXP team group. Um, I've actually been working on uh, a book called Normalization. It's one of the subjects which I think is absolutely not discussed in any level, really, but it's one of the kind of curses of, of the human experience and that we normalize no matter where we are, whether we're the kind of like the, 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 the billionaire or the, or the boy in the gutter, you know, in the slums, we normalize our situations. And, and there's a lot of that that happens within the writing world, a lot of that, that happens within the writing community. So um, it's, it's a topic that we will deep dive into for sure, because it's something that's not really talked about. And it's something that needs to be, people need to be more aware of, because it helps, again, you make sense of your world. Absolutely. Um, some uh, really great little posts from people as well. So SC Moorhead got in touch. She said, the deep dive on writing second drafts had given me the boost I needed to start facing my new book. It reminded me, it's okay not to be perfect. After a book is completed, it has been through so many filters to make it the best that it can be. You wonder, how did I manage to write that? So starting a new novel is daunting because you forget how imperfect it all is at the beginning. Thank you for the pep talk and the reassurance. I'm going in over and out. Or good luck. I mean, I'm funny enough, I'm going through the same thing. I'm, uh, I'm starting the second book in a series. And uh, the, my, my, my procrastination for that is because I know I'm going in and this is going to be an ongoing series, fingers crossed. I'm actually using Scrivener to create a Bible. And I'm rereading the first book and doing little uh, little files for different characters, picking out their. Li- we're figuring out where they left at the end of the um, end of the first story, and the little things I've set up that maybe we didn't uh, complete, and this sort of untapped potential. So it's it's me just building that clay, you know, and putting it all together, and then building a story out of that. So yeah, it's um. It is, it is hard. It is hard to get that boulder moving again. It feels a bit like that kind of the stretching and limbering up when you have to start training for another marathon. That's yeah. the analogy yeah. I've got. <laughs> right. <okay. laughs> um, we, had, uh, we had a lovely um, note from Taj Fragine. Uh, it says, I did it. Following great advice from Sam at Lounge, that's Sam Missingham, who's been on the show a few times, and the bestseller experiment, I've just sent out my very first writing newsletter. If you want a copy, you still can get it. Head over to tajfragine.com. So that's T-A-J-F-R-E. 
G-E-N-E.com and hit subscribe and he'll send it to you. So Taj, congrats on that. We're so glad we've been a part of that. And seriously, starting a newsletter, if you want to build a readership, build an audience, is absolutely essential. So I've signed up to it. So best of luck with that, Taj. And then this is one of my favorites. This is uh, Paul Arduin. Paul uh, put a post on Facebook, said, BXP magic, question mark, question mark. I've published four books, never cracking the top three in my category on Amazon, even with a huge push during my last release. Then last month, I joined the BXP team at the top tier on Patreon. Late last night, my new book, which I put on Amazon pre-order not 12 hours earlier, hit number one in its category, giving me the elusive orange ribbon for the first time. Even better, I made more money on the first 12 hours of this pre-order than in a week of my book three release. Coincidence? <laughs> I think not. So thanks I so much it. for that, Paul. That's really amazing. Really, really love those that. kind of those kind of uh, messages. Absolutely make my week, and it really uh, do. it's fantastic. I love it. So, and, and if you want to be like Paul and join the BXP team and get that orange ribbon, mm. no guarantees, obviously. No, folks, no, but, no, no, you know, you know <laughs> this is our readers telling us, what, readers, our us, listeners telling us this. Pop over to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support to find out more. And here's someone finally, uh, John Joshua Taylor got in touch, and I think. JJ Taylor is well on his way to an orange ribbon as well. He said, I've been listening to your podcast for so long and decided to challenge myself and write a book in 30 days. Okay. Uh, thanks to your inspiration, I have achieved it and it's out. And I've had a look and it's called The Companion, book one, Daughters of the Dark. Uh, talking about horror, this is all it's set in the world of vampires and erotica. And I'm looking here and already it's been out this is its first day out. It's number four in erotic paranormal fiction. So wow. congrats, JJ. <laughs> Again, folks, I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Let's see if we can get JJ to number one in erotic can you paranormal imagine? fiction. Get it up there, yeah. Mark. Get it up there. Yeah. yeah, let's do this. Let's make this happen. <laughs> so thank you, everyone, for your messages on social media. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, come and find us. We are on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram, we're at Bestseller XP. Or drop us a line. Come and see us at bestsellerexperiment.com. You'll see a contact, uh, forward slash contact there, and you can drop us a line via the email. Brilliant. I'm still just laughing at my little uh, innuendo there that no one got. Yeah, yeah, I will not rise to the occasion. You just ignored it and carried straight on, didn't you, cheeky monkey? Anyway, um, we would also like to thank everyone that has given us a review of Back to Reality. That is our book, which is available in ebook form, paperback. And audiobook very, very soon. If not, in fact, is it out yet, Mark, on audio? I should know this. Um, not at the time of recording. It's very okay. frustrating. Very frustrating. <laughs> we'll do a whole series about, we'll do a whole a whole episode on the frustrations of trying to get an audiobook live. Very different. But yes. keep an eye out. It's coming soon. But thank you to everyone that has read it and reviewed it on Amazon. If you haven't read it, please pop over to all good book online stores where you'll be able to get yourself a copy and um we'd also like to say if you'd like to sign up to our newsletter we have a bestseller experiment newsletter just pop over to the website bestsellerexperiment.com hit on the mailing list or newsletter button and pop your name in and you may get a little free gift when you do that so thank you to everyone who signed up and thank you mark for another amazing episode and to phoebe of course our guest oh 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 Let's now we don't do this very often. We should oh, probably yes. do this more often. But we're, I'm going to talk about next week's guest. You, you like you like movies, don't you, Mister D? You like I movies. do. I love movies. Uh, you like movies like um, 
Did you ever see Death Becomes Her? That was a great movie. I, I, did. I love that film. Yeah, fantastic movie. Carlito's Way, the Brian De Palma movie. Oh, Absolutely classic. Carlito's Way. Yeah, yeah. Mission Impossible, that first Mission Impossible movie. That was fantastic, wasn't it? Amazing. That was a terrific movie. That first, well, those first two Jurassic Park movies, I think we can all agree were the best Jurassic Park movies, right? Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. 100%. That first Spider-Man movie, the first Sam Raimi-directed Spider-Man movie, yeah, that was terrific, wasn't it? There's a, there's, that a, one. there's a movie I love called Zathura, A Space Adventure. That's, yeah, that's I've terrific. heard of that one. I've Absolutely not seen it, terrific. I've heard of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. All these movies were written by next week's guest. Uh, a gentleman by the name of David Kep, one of the most successful Hollywood screenwriters of all time, and he's written a novel and he's on the show next week, and I got to wow. speak to him. And I, I, I must confess, I came come across as a complete bloody fanboy. But it's going to be <laughs> such a fun interview, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So it's a real treat. So tell your friends, folks, anyone who's a big movie fan, they're going to want to check this one out. It's essential listening. Absolutely amazing, Mr. Stay. Cannot wait. <laughs> so if you want to listen to that, it will be out next Monday. But in the meantime, it's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark Tour. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>